Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we meet a man who shows his love for fishing by building exquisite, handmade fly rods and sharing what he knows with others. So the uh, casting motion is, is the same thing as throwing a baseball fish. And Appalachia has a shortage of nurses. Experts say tackling racism could help. I have to say that part of the reason we have a nursing shortage is that many nurses of color have said enough. I'm not taking it anymore and I'm out. We also have the story of how a minor league Tennessee baseball team traded at shortstop for a turkey. He then served that turkey at a winter banquet for the sports writers. When asked, why did you trade a player for a turkey? He said, the turkey was having a better year. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Most athletes welcome technical innovations in sports equipment. Why run a marathon in flat-footed canvas sneakers when you can have a shoe that feels like you're running on a cloud? And tennis. When's the last time you saw anyone play with a wooden racket? Fly fishing is a different story. Some folks prefer to do things the old-fashioned way, with fishing flies and rods made by hand using traditional materials. Folkways reporter Zach Harold takes us along on a trip to the Elk River to learn more. When Lee Orgo's fly fishing, he doesn't haul his rod in one of those racks on the front bumper of his pickup. He doesn't wedge it into the back seat, and he sure doesn't throw it in the bed to rattle around with his tackle box and cooler. Lee keeps his fishing rods in a hard plastic case. And inside of that case, the pole is shrouded in a hand-sewn linen pouch. You understand why once he takes it out. This one is, of course, I probably didn't put a date on it. I just put a number. This is the 13th one, 11th one. So that's probably, I don't know, 17 years old or somewhere around in there. The two sections are made of a honey-colored wood, bamboo, actually, and come together inside a delicate brass fitting. Both sections are accented with bands of red silk thread, which, besides looking good, hold down the handmade line guides. The bottom of the rod, where the reel attaches, is made from dark walnut. The handle is crafted from cork. This isn't just a fishing pole. It's a work of art. And it even has the artist's signature right there on the shaft written in black ink. Lee put it there himself, because he made this rod, and 133 others like it. And all it took was some hand tools and a whole lot of time. Lee discovered fly fishing as a kid. He grew up in West Virginia, but spent each August in Montana, where his dad grew up. A couple guys came up this little creek, this, uh, I think it's Little Bear Creek or something. It's up near the Wyoming border, or might actually be in Wyoming. And they just were catching fish one after the other. So I told my dad, it's like, I want to learn how to fly fish. He didn't take to bamboo fly rods quite as quickly. He tried a few of them, but found them heavy and unwieldy. But his opinion changed at a workshop he attended. And somebody had a little seven-foot Orvis bamboo rod, and I cast that, and, and, I, and I really liked it. And uh, did some research, and I was shocked to find that you can build these things in your basement. So 20 years ago, that's exactly what he started doing. The process starts halfway around the world in the Gulf of Tonkin. This region on the border of Vietnam and China is home to a variety of bamboo that's coveted by fishing rod makers. The walls of Tonkin cane are thick and its fibers are both strong and flexible. These combs of bamboo are cut down and loaded into shipping containers headed for the United States, eventually finding their way to basement workshops like the one Lee keeps in his Charleston, West Virginia home. To turn bamboo into a bamboo fly rod you start with a dull knife. Lee taps it into one end of the cane with a hammer. You actually take a knife and twist and break it apart, and then you break it down into six individual strips, and then you have to work it and straighten it, 
get the little bumps and hooves out of it. Once he's broken the bamboo into strips, they go into his planing form. This is a four foot hunk of steel with a groove running down the middle, which holds the strips at a precise 60 degree angle. Lee places a strip in that groove and goes to work with a hand plane. He makes pass after pass using smaller and smaller wood planes to shave off thin ribbons of bamboo. He keeps going until the top of the strip is flush with the top of the form. Then he repeats the process five more times. Three strips for the tip section of the rod and three for the butt section. Then you wind up with six 60 degree strips tapered that you then roll back up together and glue together. Lee also makes metal loops for the rod's line guides, which he ties on with silk thread. He makes the rod's reel seat by turning wood on a lathe. He stains and finishes the wood and shapes the handle from cork. There's still a couple pieces that I don't make, but eventually I get to the point where I'd like to make it stem to stern every bit of it myself. Um, I gotta probably retire before I do that and get a little more equipment. At present, it takes Lee somewhere between 60 to 80 hours to complete a rod. He's working on rod number 135 right now, which means he spent the equivalent of a year of his life sitting in his workbench, planing and wrapping and gluing and shaping. And that's probably a conservative estimate. Some rods take longer than others. And the whole process took a lot longer when he was first starting out in the early 2000s. See, there weren't a whole lot of books on the subject, and certainly no YouTube tutorials. Lee got his introduction to the craft on an email listserv. For those of you who weren't on the internet back then, a listserv was like an email version of a group chat. Anytime Lee would have a question, he'd shoot out a message and someone would write back. Bunch of, just a bunch of old cranky old guys, that's kind of the community, but they're really helpful about passing down information. But the community wasn't only generous with its knowledge. Remember those planing forms that Lee used to whittle down his bamboo strips? He inherited those from another rod maker, who made the forms by filing them down by hand, a job that probably took hundreds of hours. And when Lee was making the tool he uses to twist wire into line guides, another maker stepped in to help. There was plans online and I didn't have the things for it and someone sent me all the stuff from it, all the, the brass hex rod and these set screws and all through, and just said, hey, well, next time somebody else uh, needs something, you just, you just kind of pay it forward kind of thing. So, and I've done that. Lee has paid it forward. As the community migrated off of that listserv and on the forums and Facebook groups, he's become one of the old guys of the group though not quite as cranky as the ones who took him under their wing. I found an old chunk of uh, American chestnut in an old house that had fallen down and, and got on that forum and say, hey, anybody wants American chestnut to make some, some real seats out of? And uh, wind up shipping that stuff all over to people that you know, wanted it. And just say, give me the shipping and I'll send you the wood and stuff. So He says it's partly out of self-preservation. The more bamboo fly rod makers there are in the world, the more motivation there will be for folks to continue importing Tonkin cane from the other side of the planet. But talking to Lee, you get the sense that that isn't the only reason he wants to pass down what he knows. For one thing, he's just a natural-born teacher. When I tagged along as he fished the Elk River last fall, I told him I just wanted to observe, but he couldn't help himself. So the uh, casting motion is is the same thing as throwing a baseball I didn't even have a rod, and yet I got a beginner's class in fly casting. People get a fly rod, and the first thing they want to do is they want to do this. And you wouldn't throw a baseball like that. You throw a baseball like that, so the motion is just exactly the same as throwing a baseball. Lee also shares what he knows because he wants to preserve what his old school rods represent a link to a time when you put your catch in a wicker creel instead of a Yeti cooler, a time before sportsmen traded in their fedoras for baseball caps and their canvas canoes for fiberglass bass boats. Uh, if I just wanted to go catch fish, I would go fish a carbon rod and I'd fish live bait and I would catch more fish. All that stuff is readily available at any well-stocked Walmart, and it's fairly cheap. It would work just fine. But there's a lot of things that work just fine that just kind of lack a little bit of soul to them. For Inside Appalachia, 
I'm Zach Harold in Charleston, West Virginia. To see Lee Orr's rods and watch a short documentary Zach made in his workshop, visit wvpublic.org. Healthcare access is still a major problem in our region. And since the pandemic, it's getting worse. It's not just lack of facilities in rural areas. There's a shortage of staff to do the work. Right now, there's a growing need for more nurses, especially people of color. WFPL's Morgan Watkins reports. We're going to put the blood pressure cuff on my arm. So pump it up to about the 180. At Humana's headquarters in Louisville, Kathleen Corcoran and Sarah Harrington show 12-year-old Madison Victor how to take someone's blood pressure. Both women are there for a summit of Humana's Nursing Advisory Council. With nurses from across the country in town, the healthcare company invited middle schoolers to come learn about their careers. It was actually really fun because you can learn how to help other people and even help yourself in the simplest ways. Madison and the other kids go to the Grace James Academy of Excellence. It's an all-girls school that mainly teaches black students. Kathy Driscoll is Humana's chief nursing officer. She says they're looking to inspire future nurses. The national nursing shortage is a big reason why. We each, as organizations, need to do our part to really fill that pipeline. And that's one of the reasons we're working with seventh graders today, right? Encouraging more people to go to nursing school is part of the solution. Retaining nurses is another. Experts say nurses need better support and resources. That's especially true for people of color who experience racism in the industry. I have to say that part of the reason we have a nursing shortage is that many nurses of color have said enough. I'm not taking it anymore and I'm out. That's Delanor Manson. She's the first black person to lead the Kentucky Nurses Association in its 117-year history. Her grandmother was a nursing assistant and encouraged her to pick this profession. Manson graduated from the University of Kentucky's nursing school in the 1970s, but she says her experience there was horrendous. She says she and the school's few other black students were not treated with much respect. Manson remembers an instructor told her she'd make a better nursing assistant than a nurse. I had to call and ask my mother, what could she possibly be talking about? And what my mother told me is that they don't think that Black people make good nurses because we're not smart enough. And she said, and I'm sure you'll prove her wrong. Manson's nursing career took her across the world as a now-retired Navy officer. Racism remained a challenge, and she says it still throws up barriers for Black nurses today. Many African-American nurses who are very qualified in terms of degrees and experience do not get the opportunity for promotion. Black people can build diverse careers with a nursing education, but Manson says schools and workplaces must do more to support them. Valencia Brown works at the Norton Infectious Diseases Institute in Louisville and is earning a doctorate of nursing practice. She says mentors helped her advance her career. I leaned on people to help me and to advise me on what to do when I find myself in a sticky situation or faced by racism. And that's what I have done as a Black woman to succeed. Brown says Black people's contributions to the profession are minimized. Going through nursing school, I never heard or learned about one Black nurse in history that contributed to anything. But plenty of Black nurses have been critical to the field. Brown mentions Mary Seacole, a pioneer in nursing who treated wounded men during the Crimean War, the same war that made Florence Nightingale famous. Brown says these stories can inspire future nurses of color. Haley Chandler is one of the students who met nurses from Humana's Nursing Summit. She says they talked about why diversity in healthcare matters. When you have somebody who looks like you that's like taking care of you, you have like a connection with them because of like your background, it kind of gives you a sense of belonging and it'll make it easier for you to like talk to them and like understand what is happening. I'm Morgan Watkins in Louisville. Electricity costs have grown faster in West Virginia than in any surrounding state. That's according to a report by environmental consulting firm Downstream Strategies. Joey James is one of the report's authors. WVPB energy reporter Curtis Tate spoke with James about what's driving the increases. 
Your report tracks the increase in electricity rates over the past decade and beyond. With recent PSC requests from Appalachian Power and Monpower, they're set to go up even more. What's going on? So, you know, West Virginia's electricity rates have, have more than doubled uh, since 2005, which outpaces increases in every other state in the country. And, you know, despite hard evidence that the status quo is, is hurting West Virginia ratepayers, regulators and utilities have, have really doubled down on aging coal-fired power plants and dismissed alternative sources of energy. So, you know, perpetuating these problems is really the, the fact that we have non-competitive uh, resource procurement practices um, with both parent utilities uh, in, in West Virginia. And that has led, you know, really to these record high uh, cost recovery cases and a continuum of, of rate increases for West Virginia consumers. Doesn't that pose a risk to the state's economy? What should the PSC be doing differently? The way that our electricity rates are increasing, um, it really is a gigantic risk to, to economic development and and uh, you know sustaining the the economic drivers that we do have in the state. Um, you know, it really doesn't have to be as hard as the the Public Service Commission is 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 making it. Uh, the PSC should should mandate energy efficiency programs to kind of rein in the uh, electricity demand a little bit. And after that, the Public Service Commission should be requiring that all utilities undertake rigorous all-source procurement practices to acquire new generation sources. Right now, utilities aren't required uh, really to follow any sort of competitive procurement process. Um, and that puts consumers at risk. A market-driven portfolio of, of resources um, is gonna provide the cheapest price um, with you know, an appropriate level of, of risk. What's an example of a state that's taking a better approach? And what makes it better? Yeah, so the one that we utilize or that we mentioned in the report is Indiana. Uh, you know, it's it's not just states that are are producing their electricity primarily from renewables that are, uh, you know, implementing rigorous all-source procurement practices. Coal-heavy states are, are doing it too, and they're doing it because it protects consumers, um, you know, and that has been proven. Um, so there really is no excuse for the Public Service Commission not to require utilities to... Um, you know, to implement some sort of rigorous all-source procurement practice. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, they haven't. And we're in this situation where our ratepayers are at the whim of, of whatever the utility companies, you know, whatever they want to do. About a year and a half ago, the PSC asked or required Appalachian Power and Monpower to run their coal plants at a 69% capacity factor. What's the reality behind that number? So, you know, we we have not been meeting that 69% mandate, um, uh, you know, for a, quite a long time. 69% capacity factor was only achieved um, in 1999 and 2003. So it's been over 20 years since the, the coal fleet in West Virginia has actually achieved that 69% capacity factor. And as you can imagine, you know, the the way that we produce energy, the way energy markets look is really different um, in 2023 compared to 2003. You know, competition from electricity generated from natural gas and renewables, supply and, and pricing of fuel sources have restricted, you know, the utility's ability to achieve higher capacity factors on a consistent and economically sensible basis. You know, it's simply been cheaper not to run coal-fired power plants. And the Public Service Commission, with that 69% mandate, kind of ignores the market entirely and says, you shall, you know, operate your plants at 69% at capacity factor at any cost. What else can you tell us? One thing that I'll note here is that, you know, in a lot of the discussion in a lot of the discussions at the Public Service Commission, in West Virginia, um, you'll hear folks from the coal lobby and even commissioners at the Public Service Commission 
talk about decarbonization at any cost and protecting consumers from decarbonization at any cost, but they're not protecting consumers from coal at any cost. Actually, they're, they're encouraging coal at any cost. And, and that's really troubling because I don't see anybody advocating for decarbonization at, at any cost. Nobody is, is saying these coal plants need to shut down uh, tomorrow. They're saying, hey, we can be smarter about the way that we procure our energy sources to protect consumers. And unfortunately, our, our public service commission has enabled uh, utilities to to pursue a you know a, a generation portfolio uh, that is that is coal at any cost. Coming up, as the climate changes, animals need options for shelter and food. So a new project is improving biodiversity by planting American chestnut trees. Because of this mountain biodiversity and this mountain habitat. If a species can't survive in one place, it can move over a little bit to another place. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Most of the adult chestnut trees we see in Appalachia are Chinese chestnuts, which were brought to America about a century ago. Those imported trees brought a fungus with them, and that fungus nearly wiped out the American chestnut tree. Now a graduate student at Shepherd University is working on a project to reintroduce chestnut trees to the Appalachian region. Shepherd Snyder brings us this story. Chestnut trees used to be abundant in the Appalachian region until a blight wiped them out at the turn of the 20th century. Now, determined growers like Susan Thompson are part of an effort to return the trees using hybrid saplings. They're combining the American chestnut with the Chinese variant, which is a little bit more sturdy. We're trying to get as close to a pure American as we can, but still retain the quality of resistance to the blight, the fungus. For the blight, chestnuts were used in the region not just as a source of timber for furniture, but as a way to feed your family. They're super nutritious, one of the highest nutrition contents. They're also great for things like people with diabetes, and they help a lot of nutritional needs that people have who have challenges. The planting was organized at Shepherd University's Tabler Farm, which the school has been using to reintroduce other native plants like hackberry and serviceberry. But farm coordinator Madison Hale says chestnuts are much more useful economically. If you are thinking about how can I make a living off of trees in farming, the chestnut is a species that you're going to want to plant because they're very marketable. Hale says they're able to support the project because of Tabler Farm's status as a university farm, which allows for more experimental crop growing than what commercial farmers can allow. Because we are a university that most of our what we're doing is grant funded, we have an opportunity to bring the educational and experimental and research side of farming into this. Thompson organized the project as part of her coursework for a Master of Arts in Appalachian Studies. Sylvia Sherbet, director of Shepherd University's Center for Appalachian Studies, says this project is one of the programs the course supports to help keep Appalachian traditions alive. I think now we're kind of at our, you know, our, our real uh, high point in what we're able to do, which is to tell the story of West Virginia and to tell the story of Appalachia. Thompson also had volunteers from her program, as well as around the community, helping with the planting through an open sign-up. One such volunteer was Martinique Gray, a history major at the university. I have a horse farm, and I'm really interested in learning how to, you know, improve the environment on my farm and how to better improve, you know, the kind of living I have and the kind of lifestyle that I'm building for myself. 
Thompson and other advocates say the most important use for chestnut trees is its role in recovering the Appalachian Mountains' already strong biodiversity. American chestnut trees grew more than 100 feet tall, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They helped cool the mountains, with the chestnuts themselves helping keep animals fed and abundant. In the face of a changing climate, animal species are taking advantage of the shelter and food. It's got hundreds of microclimates there, which they don't have, you know, for example, in other places. Because of this mountain biodiversity and this mountain habitat, if a species can't survive in one place, it can move over a little bit to another place. Growing American chestnuts is a long-term project. Part of it requires figuring out how quickly these trees can grow to full size. But Thompson says the productivity that comes from the finished crop will be worth the wait. Normally, it can take, I don't know, five to ten years for a tree to become productive in terms of producing chestnuts. You'll have a tree that produces 6,000 chestnuts per year for 100 years. Talk about food security. And Thompson says that the tenacity of the chestnut tree can be a symbol representing the entire region and its people. The story of the American chestnut is the story of the Appalachian people. Downtrodden, you know, impacted in ways that just really cut it down, but coming back anyway. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Shepherdstown. If you live in or around West Virginia, you've probably heard the history of how the state split off from Virginia. But if your history classes didn't get into it, maybe you've wondered what happened. The simple answer is, the two states split during the Civil War, and West Virginia was formally admitted into the Union on June 20, 1863. That day is now celebrated as West Virginia Day. Hal Gorby is a professor at West Virginia University, specializing in Appalachian and state history. I recently spoke with him about the split and what people get wrong about it. Hal Gorby, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia to speak with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to join you, Mason. What's the biggest misconception that people have about West Virginia statehood and how it originated? I think there's a couple of common misconceptions, some of which have been replicated for generations through, I think, the way students have learned about the statehood period, particularly like in their West Virginia history or studies classes. The best way I would explain it is sort of this this argument that the creation of West Virginia was inevitable, that from the beginning of Virginia's history, there were these stark cultural, economic, political differences and geographical differences of the mountains that, you know, made this sort of process something that was going to happen. Um, I think the other misconception has to deal with the role of slavery in Western Virginia it's sometimes simplistically sort of made out that there was not much slavery here, which there were not the same number of slaves west of the mountains as there were in the east. But pretty much in most counties of the state, there were slaves. They were you know, human beings in bondage. You know, So it, it does play a key role, and it plays a key role early uh, in some of the early steps of the statehood process as well, and why certain areas of the state maybe are more supportive of the Union, while others might have been more supportive of secession. Let's pick it up with the Civil War and and that vote to secede that Virginia made. What happened? And do you mind picking up the story there? Yeah. So when South Carolina seceded from the Union um, right after Lincoln's election, many of the Southern states had uh, secession conventions. Now, Virginia's is the longest. So statewide, um, delegates were chosen for a convention that was held in Richmond starting in January and lasted well through the firing on Fort Sumter. The delegates from across Virginia, and then there were a decent number from what's now West Virginia, met uh, for a number of weeks and, and very much debated the merits of secession, really fearing the fact that if there is a civil war and Virginia secedes, the first state that's going to be invaded by the Union Army is going to be Virginia. So there was a little hesitancy to join with the Southern Confederacy. Uh, But the firing of Fort Sumter and then Lincoln's call for volunteers uh, really changed things. The convention finally votes to secede from the Union. It's by a vote of 88 to 55 for secession. Of the 55 no votes for secession, 42 of them are delegates from what's now West Virginia. 
Um, and so the convention votes on April 17th to secede, but in the era of the day, they want to give the ordinary people their chance to vote on what they think. So f- several weeks later, scheduled for May uh, 23rd, 1861, the residents of Virginia will participate in a referendum. Um, it is a vigorous vote. And about a week or so before that, there are a group of these Western delegates who go to meet in downtown Wheeling, Virginia. And really there, they just kind of discuss really these broad ideas of what needs to happen. Uh, there, there's kind of a divide about whether the focus should be on you know, pushing back against the secession vote or whether there should be a more broader push to try to create a new state. That idea of creating a new state really doesn't get traction because I think the theme of that convention in Wheeling is more, a little more of a moderate tone politically. And so they decide to go back to their home counties, try to encourage voters to vote to stay in the union, to show loyalty to the United States. And when that vote happens across the state, uh, it reveals some interesting trends. Uh, Virginia obviously votes to secede from the United States. And there are a number of counties in the western reaches of the state, uh, from Hancock County to the north, all the way down to Wayne and Kanawha County and the Kanawha Valley, that vote to stay in the Union. Interestingly, though, if you look at a map of this, the vote county by county, there are 24 counties of what become West Virginia that vote to secede. That's about half. It's mainly sort of the deep southern, what's now the Coalfield counties, the sort of central part of the state, and most of the counties that border from all the way Monroe County up to about Hampshire County bordering Virginia. Uh, They all vote to secede. Then there's like some, there's a dividing line clearly around where the Baltimore Ohio Railroad runs through the northwestern tier of the state uh, and where the heavier populated towns like Clarksburg, Fairmont, Wheeling, Parkersburg, there's a much stronger support for staying in the Union. But the divide is almost 50-50. You start with that map, but then as military operations begin, the Union controls, you know, differing territories, and I guess there's battles in some of these counties, and eventually um, the state as conceived grows. Why don't you walk us through, like, what happens? As soon as the secession referendum happens, the Union Army moves into western Virginia. They move across at Parkersburg, at Wheeling. They secure basically most of that area that had voted to be loyal to the Union. And around the same time, those delegates that had met in Wheeling prior decide to meet again in Wheeling in late June. Uh, Now with the sort of security of the Union Army present, there is really a discussion now about what the next step needs to be. The delegates basically come to the conclusion in this second Wheeling Convention that, yes, we want to first form a loyal government, loyal to the Union, that sort of reconstitutes the government of Virginia, Uh, that the government in Richmond has now left the United States, and that we want to show our support for the Lincoln government and for the Union effort. And um, among many of them, there is this sort of idea that, well, maybe it is time to just, as John Carlisle says it's time to cut the knot now. You know, now that Virginia seceded and we have a civil war and we have battles that are taking place, maybe it's finally time to make this move. They reconstitute a government. They uh, choose representatives for a state Senate and House of Delegates. They choose representatives to fill the open seats in the House of Representatives in Washington. And as this process goes on, eventually there is sort of a push to say, yes, we're going to create a new state west of the mountain. This is still early in the war, so issues like emancipation aren't really sort of at top of mind on the list of issues. Uh, But this is to give them sort of now control over their their own destiny, so to speak. So to fast forward a little bit, you know, eventually the process moves forward. Virginia has seceded, so the, the Union part of the state sort of moves forward with this statehood act in Congress. Anyone who's read about Lincoln or or read a biography of Lincoln, there's usually a scene where he's thinking, you know, in the days before he issues the Emancipation Proclamation. But one thing I learned from listening to your lecture was that the same time he was considering the Emancipation Proclamation, he was also considering a bill 
to create West Virginia statehood. Can you tell us about that and and paint us maybe a, a picture a little bit of some of Lincoln's deliberations? Yeah, I mean, he had been tacitly supporting this effort. Uh, he was very careful. Partly for him, it was viewed as part of a goal of maintaining the support of the border states. And he saw Western Virginia as probably the most important militarily. But by the time the bill that goes through Congress makes its way to his desk, you know, he has he has some choices. He asks his cabinet to give him their opinion. And as like often with Lincoln's cabinet, if you've ever read about them, they often frustrated him. Uh, when they return, three of them support the statehood bill and three of them are opposed, uh, leaving it to President Lincoln to make the ultimate decision. He, a- he actually waits to pretty much the last minute uh, to make, make his decision on this. And he actually is debating this along with the Emancipation Proclamation, which he's actually more secure about. It's the statehood bill that constitutionally worries him as a precedent setter. And he, he does uh, agree to it uh, at the end of 1862. In a very short but very logically argued signing statement, he argues that, you know, West Virginia is an expedient to the goals of ending the Civil War militarily. It's part of this goal of keeping the border states in the Union and making it easier for the Union Army to launch uh, its uh, attacks into the South. And he also, to raise those conservative figures who may have had a concern about, well, isn't this setting a bad precedent? Isn't any other state going to try to do the same thing in peacetime? He argued that a precedent in times of war will not be a precedent in times of peace. In some of the reading I've done, there's usually mention to this story of a postscript, which I believe is the state constitution rewrite in 1872. Do you mind just addressing that just briefly? After the Civil War, it's a very divisive period because West Virginia is not under federal reconstruction uh, because it was a loyal state during the Union. But as I mentioned earlier on, about half the counties had voted to secede and had actively sent large numbers of Confederate troops. So when the war is over, many of these folks come back thinking that they're going to just re-enter their normal lives. And many of them have been very much involved in state and local politics. And in a number of different initiatives, attestos, uh, limits on voter registration, uh, other initiatives taken by the, the state legislature and the uh, Arthur Borman administration, they really try to crack down on some of those uh, efforts of ex-Confederates. And so by a few years later, uh, they propose a compromise to basically say, if, if we support allowing all African-Americans to vote as the amendment to the U.S. Constitution, uh, we will also in exchange uh, basically allow all uh, white men over the age of 21 to vote. So basically to say there will be no restrictions on voting by race or by association during the Civil War as a compromise. Well, unfortunately, uh, all of those ex-Confederates now that can vote, they're voting mostly for the Democratic Party, of course. Uh, The statehood government is mainly uh, now the Republican Party. And so in the 1870 elections, they win basically almost all the seats, like almost flip the entirety of state government. And one of the first things they try to do is to uh, move to have a referendum on a new constitution, uh, which passes very narrowly. And in 1872, they basically rewrite the Constitution, which the Constitution we have now, the core elements of it is that 1872 Constitution with, of course, amendments that have been added. So most of the elements of the way our state government operates uh, is largely set by that 1872 Constitution, which uh, gave local control at the county level, kind of mirroring how it had existed under the Virginia government prior to the Civil War. Uh, some of the issues about land ownership and the whole tr- uh, transfer of land ownership that's going to happen in the late 19th century with industrialization. Some of that is also uh, put into that constitution as well. Uh, but that constitution does not uh, discriminate against African-Americans. So again, showing how different West Virginia is as a border state in the years during and after the Civil War. Dr. Hal Gorby, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. It was wonderful. It was a great conversation. Hal Gorby is a history professor at West Virginia University. 
His lecture on West Virginia statehood was recently featured on C-SPAN's Lectures in History series. We'll link it on our website, wvpublic.org. Most seniors rely on Medicare to cover their health care needs. But they may be vulnerable to scammers who try to obtain their Medicare numbers and defraud the program. Rebecca Gowdy is state director of West Virginia's Senior Medicare Patrol. She says there are ways to recognize the signs of a scam. WVPB's Eric Douglas spoke with Gowdy about how to prevent fraud and what to do if you or a loved one has been scammed. What's the scale of the problem? I mean, I, I, and you hear the numbers tossed around millions, billions, mm-hmm. trillions, whatever. How big of a problem is it? So Medicare fraud um, it costs $60 billion, with a B, um, each year. Um, so it's a very big problem. Um, a lot of times Medicare pays the claims first and then goes back to recoup the money. Um, so that can often times be difficult to get it back after it's paid. Um, so it's definitely a very big problem. Do you have any idea of how, what the impact is in West Virginia? Or? We don't have a number figure, okay. no. But um, we are constantly being contacted by beneficiaries who have fallen victim to Medicare fraud. Um, like I said, there's lots of different aspects to fraud. There's provider fraud, where an actual provider is committing fraud. But then there's the scammers um, that are really out there to try and get the personal information from the beneficiaries. I ask this from the perspective of what do I need to watch out for? Mm-hmm. Um, how are scammers scamming people to get their information to commit Medicare fraud? Yeah. What's going on? Yes. The biggest scams are phone-based scams. So they're calling um, beneficiaries and telling them many different things. The biggest ones we see um, are, um, did you get your new Medicare card for the year, which Medicare doesn't send out new cards annually, but with other insurance um, that people have, other cards that you get, you do normally get them annually. So, of course, that kind of triggers somebody like, oh, no, I didn't. And so they give out their information. Um, the biggest thing with that is that Medicare never calls you. So anytime that you get a phone call from somebody who says, you know, well, we're calling to update your Medicare information or make sure that you have all of the Medicare coverage you're supposed to have, or if you don't do this, you're going to lose your Medicare coverage. None of that is um, legitimate, none of it's real. They're just simply trying to get that Medicare number because it is very valuable. So these are not medical providers doing the scamming, or at least hopefully not. These are just scammers who are getting that number and somehow they're billing Medicaid directly. So there are actually providers involved in the scams. They're usually from other parts of the country that the beneficiary has never seen, doesn't know their name, but unfortunately they are bad actors as well. And so they sign the orders because Medicare does, you know, require certain orders for different things. So they do. And then there's the suppliers. If it's related to durable medical equipment, there are some suppliers that get involved. So there's a lot of times you'll see something come Come out from the Office of Inspector General who investigates the fraud, and they'll say, you know, we took down a big takedown of this many providers. Uh, so these are legitimate businesses, legitimate people involved in fraud scams. From but you may have somebody from Arizona writing writing these orders for people in West Virginia. Right, and that's one of the big things that. Um, beneficiaries, their families, caregivers can really look at is when they get their Medicare summary notices, they can um, examine that. And if they see services that are from another state, a doctor that wrote something from another state or ordered something from another state, that should send up a red flag. Does this affect the, the person's Medicare services at all? Or is it just a, a it, they're billing the government, the, it's a government fraud the government goes after them. Does this affect me as a care provider or care receiver? Luckily, we haven't seen this too much in West Virginia, but other um, states have seen hospice fraud, where people get put onto hospice when they're not um, eligible for hospice. And then Medicare is not going to cover certain services when you've got a hospice um, on your record. So if you need um, heart surgery, but you have hospice, Medicare is not going to pay for that. So it can definitely um, cause problems for people not getting the services that they need. I think I've been defrauded. What do I do? 
Again, it depends on the type of fraud or if you think that it might have been an error or abuse. A lot of times it could be a simple billing error that might have happened, and so you might reach out to your provider's office. But if you did have like a scam phone call come in and you gave out your Medicare number, and as soon as you gave it out, you're like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. We get those all the time, so they can definitely reach out to the Senior Medicare Patrol. We have a toll-free number. Um, We have a website. Like I said, you can also go to your local senior center that you could talk to somebody. But we're going to walk you through that conversation. What did they ask you about? What did you talk about? If you gave out your Medicare number, we can talk to you about how to report that to Medicare as a compromise number. You can request a new number from Medicare. So now that they're not Social Security-based, you can get a new number if needed. And then if there was potential fraud or abuse that took place, we can report that on to the Office of Inspector General. That was Rebecca Gowdy speaking with Eric Douglas. The interview is part of the series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. For a longer version, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Minor League Baseball is back. Through late August and early September, there's almost always a game happening somewhere. Veteran minor league baseball announcer Tim Haggerty is the author of Tales from the Dugout, 1001 humorous, inspirational, and wild anecdotes from minor league baseball. Bill Lynch spoke with Haggerty about minor league ball and some of Appalachia's best baseball lore. Tim Haggerty, tell me a little about yourself. Tell me how you got into baseball. Well, I was fortunate that my high school had a cable access broadcast station at it. Uh, So I got to broadcast games when I was 16, 17, and knew this is what I wanted to pursue. I grew up in Massachusetts and was passionate about baseball, loved playing. I was the type of kid that even in Massachusetts, if you asked me to name 10 Kansas City Royals, I could do it. I knew the rosters. I knew the statistics. I was the type of kid that would read the box scores every day. Um, And now in my job, that helps me actually, because a lot of those players that I was following as a fan, as a kid have become coaches and scouts. Sometimes I'll be in a press box and somebody introduces themselves and I'll say, oh, you played for Cincinnati. And they sort of looked at me surprisingly. So I guess my childhood passion has helped me as an adult. Where where did your career take you? Yeah, I targeted a college, Northern Vermont University, that had a really specific broadcast program. And what was great about that, it was in a rural area that I was able to broadcast games for a local AM station. And from there, First job was in Idaho Falls, Idaho, beautiful city. That's where the Royals AAA team is, excuse me, Royals Rookie League team is. And uh, it was there that I met a young player, Billy Butler, who went on to be a major league all-star. And we've occasionally remained in touch. And he actually contributed the forward to my new book. So it was fun to reconnect with him. Uh, From there, went to Mobile, Alabama. And that's where I saw some ballparks in the region that your listeners are. I called games at Chattanooga, at Knoxville. Loved them both. What a beautiful area, East Tennessee. From there, went to Portland, Oregon, Tucson, Arizona, and now I'm in El Paso, Texas with the Padres AAA team. So what do you like about minor league baseball? A lot. I think it's the ultimate community events. There are so many fans who love the Cardinals or the Pirates or the Braves, but in smaller cities, there's something about Charleston across that player's jersey or Asheville across that player's jersey. That's your city. That's your professional team. What I also love about it is that in a lot of minor league cities, I hear from fans who say, my parents brought me here. Now I'm bringing my kids. And also just how different it is. I've been fortunate enough to broadcast games in about 60 different stadiums. They're not all alike. You know, to me, the local ballpark is much like a local community. Each of them has their own flavor. Let's talk about the book. This is your second book, isn't it? It is, yeah. My first book came out in 2012. That was about the craziest team names in minor league history, including the Wheeling Stogies, named after a cigar. Uh, But my new book, Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. It's about the wildest stories that have ever taken place. And speaking of Wheeling... In West Virginia, the oldest story that I found in my book takes place there. In 1877, Wheeling put together this promotion in which fans would try to capture a greased pig. And if you got the pig, you got to keep the pig. And what it taught me was that these days, minor league teams do all sorts of crazy things to sell tickets and to get media attention. That's not new. Wheeling was trying wild things in 1877. Something you mentioned, I guess, in the notes was uh, Chattanooga and the the trade for the for the turkey. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, in the 1930s, Chattanooga's owner was this eccentric guy named Joe Engel who would do anything to get attention. One time he had players enter the field on camels. So Engel traded his shortstop, Johnny Jones, to Charlotte for a turkey. He then served that turkey at a winter banquet for the sports writers. When asked, why did you trade a player for a turkey? He said, the turkey was having a better year. <laughs> so the research on this, where, where did you find the stories? I've always loved baseball research, and there was a lot of different sources. The origin of this book, when researching something else back in 2012, I found this 1880s newspaper archive, and it talked about a Texas League game in Austin that got delayed when a wild bull ran on the field. I don't know about you, but when you see something like that, I want to know everything about this. The bull was kicking up dust, fans are shrieking, it knocked down a fence. And that taught me that hidden in newspaper archives are so many baseball stories that a lot of people don't know about. So newspaper archives was a big one. I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame library in Cooperstown, which is a great resource. They have a lot of old baseball publications there. There was also the Spalding and Reach Guide. It was an annual publication that baseball fans devoured. It was really the only thing of its kind from the late 1800s through the early 1900s. And it would have a lot of statistics and rosters and basic stuff, but also would have these wild stories. So it was fun to flip through there. I think it was in one of those that I found a great story that I know you have listeners in Asheville, North Carolina. In 1916 there... They finished a nine-inning game in 31 minutes. Both teams had to catch a train, so they purposely agreed to play as fast as possible. So runners are purposely running, just keep on running until they get tagged out. Fielders are sprinting on and off the field. But the fans were upset about this because they paid full price, and they're seeing this mockery of a game. So Asheville's owner, L.L. Jenkins, was so mad that he gave every fan a refund. So with a thousand and one stories there, do you have one that's a favorite for you? Well, probably the one that took the most time to research. In 1978, there was a fly ball that disappeared. Double-A Bristol was at Double-A Jersey City in the Eastern League. I wasn't able to pinpoint the batter, but a Jersey City batter hit a high fly ball to right field, and it vanished. It didn't land on the field. It didn't go over the fence. It didn't land in the stands. And I know this sounds crazy, but I'm talking to players who were on the field at the time. I corresponded with somebody who was in the stands, and everybody sort of described it the same way, like just speechless. What happened to this ball? So the umpires got together. They understandably don't know what the rule is when a ball goes up and never comes down. So they gave the batter a double. Yeah, in tonight's game in Charleston or Bluefield, uh, if a ball goes up and disappears, there's precedent. It's a double. The book is called Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. Tim, thanks a lot. Thank you, Bill. That story reminds me. I need to get out to see my own local minor league teams. I'm lucky I'm close to two, the Salem Red Sox and the Pulaski River Turtles. No matter who you root for, whether it's the Asheville Tourists, the Johnson City Doughboys, or the Charleston Dirty Birds, we hope you enjoy summer baseball season. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Tyler Childers, Eric Vincent Huey, Jeff Ellis, and Alabama. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.